Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By the end of this podcast, nearly 10,000 new malware variants will have launched. Now, AI can help protect your data from threats wherever it lives with IBM security. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash smart. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. This is the part where I ask you to tell a friend about this show. See how quick that was? Painless. What do you think, Nell? Oh, I'm at Vox Media, too. Uh, Nell also agrees that she is at Vox Media. That is the voice of Nell Scovell. Did I pronounce it correctly? You did. Congratulations to me. She is a TV writer. She is a book writer. She wrote a book called Just the Funny Parts. She also wrote with Sheryl Sandberg a book called Lean In. Many of you have heard of. Welcome, Nell. Oh, nice to be here. Thanks for joining me. This has been on my list for many months. I'm very psyched to read this. I very, was very psyched to read this. I'm very psyched to talk to you. What's the best way to describe this book? It's, it's a m- mashup of, of genres, right? Uh, it is. I, it's a memoir, but um, it also includes a lot of information about uh, writing. Yeah. About There's some how-to, right? How-to. How to make a Simpsons script. Yes, how, how to write a joke, how to make a Simpsons script. Um, but it's not just about Hollywood. I, I think it's about everywhere we work. Right, and then, and then specifically, right, and you point this out here, right, this is about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club, and you could expand that and say this is about so sort of being a woman in a male-dominated profession. There are many of those. So it seems like the timing is fortuitous for this book as well. Well, except the problem's been around for so long. Yeah. <laughs> I think... I was thinking of a polite way of putting it. The public discussion around the problem is, yes. is good. So it, was there an uncomfortable moment in the last six months you thought, this is bad for the world, but it's good for me and my book? No, I did tell a Me Too story in my book. And when I turned it into the publishers in the summer, I felt scared and alone. And now I don't feel that way anymore. And in fact, I went from being sort of afraid to being like, I can't wait till my book's out, and I lend my voice to this chorus. We have a club. We meet in a football stadium. <laughs> <laughs> Did I, uh, I was wondering if we're going to discuss the Me Too incident in the book. It's funny that we call it a Me Too incident. It's a weird, because it's describing men's behavior, right? Right. It's also one of those things, I remember after Lean In came out, someone said to me, what did we say before Lean In? And I said, well, I guess we just didn't talk about women's ambition. And I think it's a little of the same with Me Too. We did, there wasn't a term because we didn't talk about like it. I, I, but there's some gossip about a particular uh, executive in media that's going through right now. And people are saying, yeah, there's a Me Too. He's got, he, this person has a Me Too problem. Yeah. I thought, well, his problem yeah. allegedly, is his behavior. It's not a Me Too behavior, but right. that's a sidelight here. But back to, to that incident you describe in the book, you identify a specific person, you call him out by name. Did you rethink any of that sort of as the Weinstein stuff was heating up? And did you want to, did you wish, oh, maybe I should have included more information or maybe, I don't know, did you, re- well, did I did you, go did you back rethink in. the context of that I, at all? I went back in between the first and second galley and actually did add a little bit to, I do mention Harvey Weinstein in the book. So there's a, there was a survey last month where 94% of women said that they had been sexually harassed or abused by an older, more powerful person. And 21% said that included a forced sexual act. So this is an ongoing problem. 
And one of the great things about being in entertainment is you have access to the media. People pay attention to you. Um, you know, in my own case, <clears throat> I was pretty privileged. I, I didn't need the job desperately. I had a great support system. So I came out of it not terribly scarred. But um, not everyone is, is that lucky um, or that unlucky. <laughs> You have had a successful uh, television career. You're a successful author as well. Prior to the publication of this book, you had also gained notice for writing about sexism within David Letterman's writing staff um, a full, nearly a full decade ago, 2009, is that right? Yeah. How did writing that piece, which generated a ton of attention, which you also describe in the book, how did that change your career? So in 2009, David Letterman goes on the air and admits, I have sex with women I work with. And it, it was a strange set of circumstances. He was being blackmailed. Right, the context was I've been blackmailed. So it was weird because the context was he was the victim. And when he announced on air that he had sex with women he worked with, people laughed and applauded. It's crazy. It's on YouTube. You can look it up. Because the story was, right, the, story, the headline was David Letterman says he's the victim of a blackmail plot, which was— That's right. Which was, and that's, it was a terrible thing, and um, he handled it beautifully. He also got a pass for the underlying behavior. Right. And, you know, no one wants a witch hunt, but we do want a fair and judicious review of witches. Uh, and I wrote a piece that talked about my own experiences, because believe me, it wasn't a surprise to anyone who worked on that show when Dave made that announcement. Right, you're quite explicit in the story right. that you wrote for Vanity Fair that he was sleeping with female staff members. Right, and not just him. You know, part of the issue is when the leadership, you know, the fish stinks from the head down. Yeah. When the leadership acts that way, it gives other people permission to act that way. Um, and it was, you know, like being at the court of Versailles. There were there were cliques and backstabbings, um, which made it really hard because I just wanted to write jokes. And so how much time did you spend sort of prior to publishing that thinking, what will this do to my career? Again, you were in the middle right. of, a, of a very active Hollywood career. Did you think there's going to be a consequence for me doing this? Or do you think maybe there's an upside to me doing this? I had just gotten a job as co-EP on Warehouse 13, which was this amazing show on the Sci-Fi Channel. And I really felt, because I had worked there, that and had a, this long career that I had standing to speak to this issue. Um, and as my friend Tom Palmer would say, I don't have fuck you money, but I do have I don't like your tone of voice yeah. money. But the big pivot in the article was after a discussion of sexual harassment and sexual favoritism to pivot to gender discrimination um, in the writer's room because— one of the things I learned was it had been years since there had been even one female writer at Letterman. And I'll also add that in 33 years on the air, there was never a single person of color in that writer's room. So you write this. It's, yeah. Again, you can see it, you can see the original Vanity Fair. You can see basically a, a longer version of that in, this, in the book as well. You should read them both. What happens to you after the publication of that story? Because at the time, it was a very big deal that you wrote this. I did worry that it might end my career, and it turned out to be one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Because? It was my truth, 
And I so you feel better. You feel better. I you've been sitting on this information for a long time. You're helping other people. I mean, the idea was never to help my career, and and in fact, I thought it would do the opposite. Um, it was to help other careers because I got to be successful, but it was really hard, and it didn't need to be that hard. And I watched too many people, women, drop out because it was that hard. And then there's also all the people who never even tried because it just didn't seem doable. And so you think that helped them? Well, just, just seeing, just seeing, just seeing this imprint yeah. online in, on VanityFair.com was was literally a good thing for those people. And then, and then, yeah. and then, it didn't hurt your career. We're sitting here today talking. Well, it, it did, did put me on a path to meeting Sheryl Sandberg. Mm-hmm. I think becoming. An outspoken feminist. I'd always been one, but now I was out of the closet. Uh, and, you know, it was hard in the room at Warehouse 13. Every now and then someone would say something sexist and someone else would make a joke like, you know, be careful. Nell's going to write about an, uh, write an article about you. And I would say, yes, yeah, 19 years from now, you're going to be so sorry you said that. But there is a thing, right? there, And, and this is even if you're not writing exposés, um, if you are the minority representative in the room, right? Yeah. You become— you, And I was the only woman in that room, too. And, and this happens to you frequently in your career, yeah. and you write about this. You become—you you, you bear a lot of burdens. Um, when people, even when people are mean well— they end up sort of burdening you with all sorts of expectations. And in this case, the worry is that you're gonna, that is going to define your career. You're That's be right. a woman who writes about being a woman who's a writer. Well, it's the fear, I think, that the woman is, is the spy who's going to tell the tales out of school, who's judging you silently. Um, so it, it was hard for me, though. I don't—I'm both an insider and an outsider, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about the parallels between, just partly because of what I do, but also the, some of the context that's come up in the last year about Susan Fowler writing about Uber yeah. and some of the same Oh, context. she's a hero. And you literally have the same anecdote at one point there about you getting a shirt at Letterman that doesn't fit you. Oh, that's right. You. That's right. And that's kind of like one of the core parts of her story, right? The leather jackets that they don't make them for women yeah. because why would you make the little jackets for women? Because there are so few of them. Um, but I also think about this a lot like there is a, a – even among well-meaning people, there's a perception that well, these nerds in Silicon Valley and the nerds in the writing room, they're nerds. So they're sexist, but they're, they're fundamentally nerds. They don't know how to talk to people. You, you detail in, in great length about just what a tortured and unhappy person <laughs> David Letterman is. Right? These crazy anecdotes about right. people to hit him. Um, do you think there's something particular about these kind of workspaces that lead them, lead them to treating women poorly? Or do you think this happens at every workplace and there's no – particular excuse for this kind of behavior? Well, studies do show that in hierarchical structures, you do get more harassment. Um, There's more power concentrated at the top, which means there's more abuse of power concentrated at the top. And every TV show is very much a hierarchy. Because it's, and we can talk about this a little bit more too, but TV is this thing that's both collaborative, right? There's a lot of people who work on a TV script, but generally there's a person that everyone reports up to right. as a decision maker. Yeah. The showrunner right. is that is the title. So but you don't think there's something particular about sort of the nerddom of the TV of the writer's room or the nerddom of a bunch of coders that sort of exp- explains some of their difficulty with, with women? I think it's an excuse, not an explanation. Uh, and I think if they 
you know, if they're over 25 and they're still doing it, then they're not paying attention. And then it's willful. It's a choice. Yeah, I think it's a choice that people, in some, in some cases, people weren't aware they were making. Right. And it's harder in 2018 to say I'm not aware of that choice. That's right. I mean, we're not talking about people on the spectrum, but in general, that sort of, I'm oblivious. Um, so I get to do whatever I want. And sorry, I insulted you. You know, don't you have a sense of humor? It's like, well, actually, I do. <laughs> but you crossed the line there. You know, I tell this story um, in Just the Funny Parts where uh, we had a director who had an emergency appendectomy. And there was a discussion in the writer's room about how long it would take for him to recover. So I'm the mother of two, and I rarely talk about my kids at work. I, I have this running gag when someone asks me if I have kids. I say, yes, but I'm blanking on their names right now. But on this particular day, we're talking about abdominal surgery, and I say, you know, um, I had two C-sections, and they weren't that bad. To which another colleague said, you mean you're still tight? And so I deadpan, yes, that was the point of my story. Uh, but this is, that's the sort of everyday offhand comment that you can expect. Right. And, and, and I didn't want to step in any of that because it's a great <laughs> anecdote and I'd already read it, uh, but it's great. Um, and he I just got to, fired, I, by the way, just from the fired. WB. <laughs> I was, oh, he did? Oh, he did. <laughs> well, that's, I guess that's my thing. I, I can't imagine that happening in a regular, at least a grown up workplace. I can imagine it happening. I don't know. I, um, yeah, but I do. Think it's not normal. It's not normal, and I do think. Oh, but is that the sort of thing where you're supposed to be making jokes? Not every joke is as funny as you think it is. Sure. Some jokes push the line, and maybe that joke pushed the line a little more. And do you have to allow sort of more leeway in an environment like comedy writing, for instance, to allow yourself to to occasionally cross a line? Um, and 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 do you have any? Maybe sympathy is the wrong word. Um, empathy. For, for for dudes who might not fully understand what they're doing or saying. And this guy got fired, so apparently this is oh, a problem. Well, that was problem. years and years right. and millions of do dollars later, and 18 people had to come forward and say he had been appropriate for him to take a tumble. I think we need to spread around the discomfort more because right now you have a select group that can really say anything they want in the room and— some of us have to look at our feet <laughs> while, while they say those things. Um, I was working on the Muppets, and some of the, the upper-level guys working on the show had worked on Charlie Sheen's show, Anger Management, and they would routinely refer to actresses as dumb bitches. Like, oh, and then the dumb bitch right. says— and this isn't 1975. No, this is, this is years two ago. years ago. Yeah. So don't, don't do that at work. Should I? I know. And then it's like, well, I don't want to say anything because then, you know, I'm no fun and I'm the school marm um, and I don't want to be that. But it's, it's not fun to sit there and listen to women being referred to that way. I've been trying to figure out an appropriate place to have an ad break it here. I didn't want to do it after the C-section joke. Let's do it we now. We do it after Charlie Sheen though, right? Yeah. That's a deal. Okay. We'll be right back with Mel <laughs> Scovell. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people. So food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? 
Good news, farmers are already using AI to help increase crop yields. They use Watson and the IBM Cloud, and they provide access to weather data, analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. That's good. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. I'm back here with Nell Scovell, who's not unhappy with me, right? No. Please, we're good. Yeah, we're, we're best doing friends. Well. We're going to get there. And if you like this conversation, by the way, I don't normally do plugs for Kara Swisher. We're just going to do a live version of this with Kara sometime this spring, sometime soon. In April at, in the, April. Common, at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. You guys can I listen. I love Kara. She's the best. Yeah. If you can listen to a podcast, you can do Google. She scares you, me a little bit. She's not so scary. Don't tell she her. She takes you. the sunglasses off. She's perfectly <laughs> pleasant. Um, you have had an amazing career, even without the the David Letterman expose, even without Sheryl Sandberg, and even without sort of this this new chapter in your life. You were the first uh, writer, period, at Spy Magazine. I was. One of my all-time favorite magazines. You worked at Letterman like you talked about. You've got a, on your book cover here, it lists all of the, all, many of the places you, you, you've worked at. There's an appendix that lasts another three or four pages. Um, you have been a working writer in Hollywood, which, which by definition is success. Is that, a fair, is that a fair summary? Well, how do you define success? Because there are people who work entire careers and get very little produced which would be really frustrating. But you get paid, right? You do get paid. And that's part of the gig, right? You get paid for a lot of work. Oftentimes, very yeah. little of it shows up. Do you think about how your career would be different if you were starting it off in 2018 where there's YouTube and there's Snapchat and there's Twitter? Oh, there's Twitter, yeah. And there's also just a ton of money coming in right now from Apple and Amazon and Netflix. It seems like there's a glut of TV, right? Hundreds and hundreds of TV shows being produced. Would this career be as attractive to you as it was when you were breaking in? when it was much harder to get to TV? There are shows I would love to work on. I watch Another Period, uh, which is Ricky Lindholm and Natasha Leggero's okay. show. It's so funny on Comedy Central. Um, I love Broad City. Yeah. So I've always actually, the draw has been certain shows. I loved working on Murphy Brown, and I loved working on Monk, um, more than working just on TV in general. For example, when I started... The top show was um, The Cosby Show and Golden Girls. But when I sat down to write a spec script, I wrote one for It's Gary Shandling's show, which I imagine very few people have ever heard of. It was Gary's sitcom before right. he did Larry Fox, Sanders. Right? It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was. I, I, and you, I loved you said, it. You said it's you so, liked it more. I, I'm with everyone else who likes, yeah, who likes the HBO that, show more. That makes sense. But but do you imagine, since in some ways it seems much easier to get on TV or create something that looks like TV in many ways, many more ways to distribute it, do you think you would have leapt into it that much earlier? You said, oh, there's a fewer gatekeepers. I can go right and do right what I want. Or would you just say, eh, let's do something that's a little harder. It seems like anyone can make one of these things. I started thinking about TV because I had this whole magazine career, and then I bumped into uh, an editor one day who said to me, Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. And I never thought of it before. And, and one of the main differences between then and now is we have this cult of the showrunner, where everyone knows about David Simon right. and Joss Whedon um, or, or Shonda Rhimes. Right, and you had to be a very specific person if you know who Stephen J. Cannell was. That's right. That's right. Right. So they're elevated now. That makes it more attractive to you? Oh, I don't know if it's—I would have been more aware yeah. that you could—I didn't even know you could be a TV writer. 
like many comedy TV writers, you went to Harvard. Unlike I'm, apparently all of them, you did not join the Lampoon. No, how did it was that happen? Scary. I went to one comp meeting, and they just dis- tell people what a comp meeting is. Oh, so. You know, at most schools, if you want to do an extracurricular activity, you go put your name on a sign-up sheet. Harvard makes its students compete for everything. Very Harvard. So you have to comp for the Harvard Crimson or comp for the for the Lampoon. Um, so I went to the first comp meeting, and, uh, you know, this guy with a big head was telling us how you write three essays, and then you throw them on the floor, and people write, their criticisms on the back, which everyone can read, and um, it uh, it just frightened me. And so you passed, and still I passed. Bu- and still bumped your way out into TV after all. I did, and in fact, bumped into um, the guy who was a comp director years later. It was Jeff Martin who went on to work for The Simpsons, and one day he even said to me, uh, "How come you didn't comp for The Lampoon?" And I was like, "Well, you scared me." <laughs> You have a very big head. And he was like, yes, I do. <laughs> I mentioned this previously. You've, you've got an entire chapter there. You say, here's how we built an episode of The Simpsons. I loved it. Is there a particular point you're trying to get across by showing how this thing starts with an idea and gets all the way through execution? You're chipping away at marble to make the statue. And one of the points I really wanted to make is how much material you generate in order to get that chiseled, perfect episode. Uh, And that room was astonishingly fast and smart, and they had people with different skill sets. Uh, So I really loved being in it. And I tell the story of sitting next to Sam Simon when I was getting my notes on my outline. And at that time, the staff was small enough that we could all sit in a circle in one room and Matt Groening was sitting across from me. And I look over at one point, and his hands are folded in his lap, and his head is kind of slumped down, and he's, you know, resting his eyes. And I look over at Sam, um, and he just mouths to me, don't wake him. <laughs> That's not in the book, is it? It is. Did I miss that? I'm sorry, I missed that part. One of the things that is in the book is you, you, you because you're a meticulous note taker. So you've got a lot of your notes from various scripts you've worked on. You've got markups of, of your scripts that other people made. Um, eventually, you move into email and you've got email exchanges yeah. about how to write for David Letterman at the Lincoln Center. It's a great tool. It's a great way to um, break up the book and also just show not tell, right? Well, I was a journalist first. So I. I had a love for primary sources. I also thought TV would go away, and I wanted to hold on to these things so I could prove that I was really there. Was there a a particular moment in your career and you thought, "Uh, TV is going away and I need to find a third or fourth or fifth act. I need something else that I can be doing. Where did you ever make a conscious pivot into something else? Well, I never thought TV is going away, but I did think... I'm a woman who's getting older, and TV might not want me anymore. And I did, um, you know, that's that's why I love writing with Cheryl. And I think speech writing is a really interesting combination of both journalism and writing dialogue for TV. Um, and I really enjoy that. I moved into directing, but I'm also a challenge junkie. Um, so writing for TV is really easy for me now. I love it, but 
How is writing for Sheryl Sandberg, writing with Sheryl Sandberg, different than writing for TV? Well, she <laughs> if I'm writing for Murphy Brown, then Candace is going to do the lines that I've written for her, unless, you know, she has a big issue. You know, Cheryl has, is brilliant, and she has her own ideas, and we talk about the best way to express them, uh, but it's less me channeling through a character and more getting in Cheryl's head. And so for Lean In, right, that's her idea. I want to write oh, yeah. about I want to write about the workplace and women in the workplace and the idea of leaning in. And then are you going and sort of punching up her script? Is it the equivalent of that? Or are you going and doing research to, to flesh out ideas? What's the – how did that process work? You know, it was a true collaboration and we're both iterators. Um, so we would send chapters back 40 times, maybe more. Um, and, you know, just get it to where we were both happy. She's an amazing writer, but she's also running Facebook, and she has two small kids. Um, when that when that book came out, I think a lot of folks said, ah, she's on a trajectory. She's, she's the COO at Facebook. It's an incredibly powerful job, but she's clearly going to be making – she's now a public figure. She's on the cover of Time magazine. You can sort of see where this is headed. She's going to end up running – the government or something even bigger. Uh, uh, did I you wish. get that? Did you get that sense? You know, we we really stayed in the lane yeah. and and lean in was boy, it was such a um, passion project for both of us. Uh, so I don't I don't know. I mean, Dave died two years after Lean In came out. Oh yeah, her husband, and you know that was traumatic and sad and shocking. And uh, so I think that obviously had a huge effect on whatever those plans were. And then you guys wrote a second book about that, about her dealing with grief. Well, I I edited Option B. She wrote that with Adam Grant. Uh And, um, you know, we we all wanted to honor Dave Goldberg uh, with that project. And, you know, I learned a lot from writing it. Are you in touch with with Cheryl now? Are yeah. you? Yeah. So, like, when, are, are, I'm going up to do a Facebook Live this week. At the point where, so we're recording this a couple of days after the story broke in the New York Times about data breaches, but they weren't a data breach. Yeah. Um, do you check in with her about stuff like that? Say, here's here's my suggestion for how to handle this. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. I I am. Here's what I know about Facebook: is I'm a Facebook user. Yeah. I was an early adopter. I I joined when you needed a .edu address. Um, it's for a writer. It's one of the greatest social tools available. Um, oh, it doesn't seem like a helpful tool at all for writers. It seems like a great way to not write. Maybe you're more disciplined than I am. Oh, maybe. I, I've I've had a lot of like little things I've put up and then thought, hey, that would be a good magazine piece. Uh, so I'm I'm a big fan of Facebook. Do you have advice for well-meaning men who run things about how to improve the workplace? Yes, I do. <laughs> Can you share a couple with me? Um, number one, hire more women. They say it's hard. There's a pipeline problem. I'm setting you up here. <laughs> I don't think it's a pipeline problem. Um, I think it's a broken doorbell problem. And I think the talent is out there. I think there are women, people of color, people with disabilities – People in the LBGTQ community who um, are ready and should be they should be led in that door. Let me play devil's advocate. Yes, or white straight men's advocate. Okay, we, we need some <laughs> which help. is the same thing. Um, 
I'm maybe the, maybe there is a pipeline. I, I, I'm just I'm, I, I got a thick skin. I'm good. Um, there is a pipeline, um, but it is harder to do this, right? It is harder to hire uh, from a diverse population. You have to spend more energy doing it. And if I can find a guy, a white straight white guy who's good at the job, shouldn't I hire him? Why sh- why should I spend more energy trying to diversify my workplace? Well, first of all, you know, Warren Buffett said that one of the reasons he was so successful is he was only competing with half the population. So how do you know you're getting the best person? Mm -hmm. And how are you defining the best person? Is the person who thinks like me? Maybe the best person is someone who doesn't think like you exactly and who has different experiences, different perspectives, different connections. You've got a great anecdote in there about moral licensing. Can you explain Mm. what that is? Well, the best— explanation is from Malcolm Gladwell. I'm not going to plug someone else's uh, podcast, but his very first one uh, was about moral licensing. So moral licensing is the fancy way to say, you know, but some of my best friends are Jewish. Um, And it's using the fact that you um, weren't discriminatory in the past to excuse actual discriminatory behavior. I'm married to a woman. That's right. My wife's a feminist. Well, Dan Scavino did that with, I can't be anti-Semitic. My my wife is Jewish, and then she just served him with divorce papers today. And in your, and (laughs) I am not even keeping up with the Dan Scavino, uh, poor Dan Scavino, poor Trump administration. Um, uh, But you bring this up in the the context of you go to a friend who's running a show and you say, you haven't hired any women or you've hired one woman in 20 years. And he says, that that can't be the case. It can't be my fault. Um, I like women. I'm married. I'm I'm a feminist. And you say, no, that's bullshit. Well, no, he got very defensive. And I pulled back because I realized that that tact wasn't working with him. What's the better way to approach someone like that who is, because by the way, Many people are defensive. Right. The best way to do it is to approach someone and say, I couldn't help but notice that you don't have many women on your staff. You know, I know a lot of fantastic female writers. uh, So um, if you want names, let me give you some. Now, the problem is most of the time they say, we're not looking. And then six months later, you find out they hired someone who was a white male, and you go, hey, why didn't you ask me? And then they get angry with you. Uh, so, But there's something to that, right? If you give them sort of enough building blocks, they can sort of put it together and say, well, this is my idea, and I did it. I wasn't forced into doing this, and so it gives them a little right. more flexibility and leeway. Um, you notice there's—you've multiple— Can I just say, though, they should do it because it will make their shows better. And, and I have— um, this great quote from Albert Brooks saying, a fairer share of humanity will always produce better comedy. You know, and that's the funniest guy on the planet as far as I'm concerned. And he wrote with a woman, Monica Johnson. He wrote Lost in America with her. He wrote Real Life with her. Um, All the really good Albert Brooks movies. Um, Well, no, Defending Your Life is the best, and he did write that one alone. No? You don't agree? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (gasps) Really? There's nothing better than the nest egg. Oh, the nest egg. Don't say nest. Don't say Desert egg. Has it's heart. a thing. <laughs> so great. Twigs. Um, but yeah, that's the best argument, right? Or that's one argument you can make is, look, this is, this is objectively better for your business. And yeah. if it takes work, that's okay because it's work you're doing that someone else isn't doing, so take advantage of that's it. That's right. You've got a great multiple coda thing going on with the Letterman story where eventually you, you, <laughs> you work with him again. Um, you're very nervous about it. That works well. And then you finally get to talk to him about your book uh, or about what you wrote about his show 
X number of years earlier. Should we spoil it or should we leave it open? Let's not spoil it. Okay. But but when I wrote my article in 2009, I was certain I would never have a moment with Dave. He's very insulated. By that point, he was working on a different floor from the writers, and you needed a thumbprint uh, to even get in his office. Uh, Even by comedy standards, he's a weird, eccentric person, right? (laughs) No, writers said that they didn't even know he was in the building unless they saw him on the show. Uh, So I I didn't think I'd ever be able to pierce that bubble. And then in 2014, I got hired to write on the Kennedy Center Honors. And I got a call from my co-writer, Louis Friedman, who said— uh, Nell, I thought you should know David Letterman's going to narrate the Tom Hanks movie. And I said, okay. And he said, that means he'll be there. <laughs> my heart just started pounding. Um, so I did get my my we'll, third we'll, act moment with we'll, Dave. We'll let people read the books. So they can figure out how that went. But as part of the coda to the coda to the coda, you note that since Letterman retired— he started advocating for more diversity in late-night entertainment. You'd say that Jay Leno has noticed the same thing as well. Any speculation about why people suddenly get religion when they're no longer running the show? Well, I do think there's an intersection between sexism and ageism, and that now both Dave and Jay know what it's like to be replaced by a less experienced younger man. It's, it's not fun. Um, but since I turned in my final draft— you know, Dave's Netflix show has come out, and um, I noticed of the five executive producers on the show, they are all men. So it's not total religion that he's got. Oh, oh no. Still some work to do. I think he's still an atheist. This is super fun. You should go buy the book. You don't yes, care if they buy an e-book. You can buy the paper. You can buy it in Kindle. Hardcover. Hardcover. On Classy. Yeah, also, if you wait for paperback, you got to wait too long. You can go see Nell talk to Kara Swisher by using Google and figuring out how to go see them in the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Nell, this was great. Oh, I appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks for your time. Thanks again, Nell. I kind of butchered that when I was complimenting her at the beginning of this podcast, but I was looking forward to this conversation for for many months. So very cool to meet her in person. Um, Again, thanks to you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing to me and tell me you like this podcast. That's great. It's even better if you tell someone else. You know how to do that. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Jill Robbie who edits this show. Thanks to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I am back next week. I will see you then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart.